Hello, this is the 3M Inside Angle podcast, and this is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore. And with me today is Dr. Rick Lemoyne. He is the Chief Medical Information Officer for Sharp Healthcare. He's responsible for providing medical direction and physician counsel for clinical effectiveness and information systems. Welcome, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Rick, you and I had a chance to chat before, and I wanted to talk about your role at Sharp and something that I find interesting, specifically around the idea that an organization is thoughtful enough to place a key leader in the space of looking out for new things that are happening in the industry that could be brought back and integrated within the healthcare delivery system. And so I wanted to explore, did I get that right, and is that what you're doing, and then how did you get there, and what do you do with that? Yes, I think you got that right. My title is Chief Medical Information Officer, and yes, I do a lot of the things that a CMIO at an organization our size would do. But I think if you talk to 10 CMIOs, you would have 10 different job descriptions. And one of the things that's a little bit different about my role is nobody reports to me. So often CMIOs are very involved with the day-to-day operations of the EMR. I have the fortune of being able to look at it from a, uh, let's say, a higher level uh, up there at least a couple of thousand feet than uh, having to deal with brownouts and shutdowns, that kind of stuff. And then as part of my role over the years, I've been interested and the organization has been interested in looking at the potential for new technologies that might not be at first directly associated with medical care, things that I've learned from talking with other CMIOs, other leaders around the country that might be applicable to us in Southern California. So I find that I just have really the privilege of of doing something like this, and, and it has been absolutely phenomenal the last few years, some of the things that we have taken a look at some of the things that we are interested in and some of the things that we've passed on. And I'm fascinated by those things. But before we go there, I'm curious about how did you get into that? Well, it sounds like quite an enviable position. So I'm a intensivist by training. I went to medical school in Nova Scotia at Dalhousie. I did my first bit of medicine at Dal and then did my fellowship in pulmonary critical care at UCSD as a Medical Research Council of Canada fellow. I did that for about three years, went back to Dalhousie, talked for a bit, went into private practice in Cape Breton, an area of distinction for the coal mines that it used to have, and was involved with the miners there. I moved back to California. All this will make sense in a minute. Uh, and worked at Sharp Healthcare as an intensivist with several of the people who I had been in the same fellows class with at UCSD. UCSD was just a phenomenal place to do a fellowship in critical care. They were really at the leading edge, and Ken Moser, who was our fellowship director, was really at the top of the game in terms of an editor, a writer, a researcher, and, and it was just a phenomenal introduction to pulmonary and critical care medicine. So I stayed uh, here at Sharp in San Diego until about 89, went back to Canada, back to Nova Scotia, became involved in medical politics, led the, really it's a doctor's union back there, led that for a couple of years, and then did a little over a year as a high official, as they say, in the Department of Health in Nova Scotia. 
And that was a education in itself. Remember, Canada has a single-payer system, cradle-to-grave responsibility for patients. So it, it was really going from the bedside with a single patient who was incredibly ill to a responsibility I had for basically for physicians and hospitals in Nova Scotia, and it was drinking from a fire hose every single day in terms of learning the mechanics of that and how it was so different from the PPO, CMO, managed care world of Southern California. I moved back to California in the very late 1990s, I think it was 98, as an intensivist, and then a couple of years later was asked to serve on the executive committee for Sharp Healthcare, where I reported to the CEO and nobody reported to me, your classic consultant role. So that was fun and gave me the opportunity to look at a lot of things that Sharp was involved in. Over the years, I ended up doing more and more with information systems and uh, was involved in our decision to start an EMR process. We had already, way back in 1984, put an EMR system in that, that made our ICUs paperless except for the physicians. And then in 2008, we partnered with Cerner and did a uh, installation at our hospitals of their EMR system. So that's where the CMIO part of it came. But I, I was always given the leeway by our CIO and our CEO to look at other systems, see what other people were doing. I also had the advantage that Sharp doesn't have a corporate CMO. So around the executive table, I was the go-to doctor and had a chance to participate in a lot of the decisions around the acquisition of new hardware and discussion around new programs that the organization would get involved with. So it's really been fascinating. And in the last couple of years, as technology has advanced, there's been more and more opportunity for me to look at some things that are going around around Southern California in, in particular and see how they might affect uh, Sharp Healthcare. For those who may not know Sharp well, could you just give me a thumbnail sketch of the organization? Yeah, that's a great idea. We are the largest healthcare provider in San Diego County, and we're essentially limited to San Diego County. We're an IDN. We have our own health plan. We have a market share of about 30% if you look at hospital discharges. Remember, we're in California where uh, you cannot have direct employment of physicians, but we have a multi-specialty medical group, Sharply Steely, that has, I think today it has a little over 700 physicians and covers the usual gamut of specialties that you would expect uh, at that size. We have an IPA organization that represents around 900 physicians, and there are, again, a large number of physicians who are completely independent of those other two organizations who come to our hospitals and clinics. We have four general hospitals, and we have three, I guess it is, specialty hospitals, including a very large women's hospital that does uh, just under 10,000 deliveries a year. We have the largest inpatient behavioral health program in San Diego County, and we have a very active rehab program at one of our hospitals. So a full-service organization and a great history. We've been going strong here since 1955. Thank you. That's quite an organization. And now I'm thinking that because Sharp has so many different irons in the fire, probably dealing with a lot of issues, it brings me back to your comments about looking out for interesting technology solutions or things that you could bring back to your system. 
Are you working that agenda across the board of the plan, the IPA, the medical group, or are you focused on aspects of that? You know, I, I, I try to take as broad a view as possible. Everybody around the leadership table has as a responsibility to be on the outlook for things that will improve what we do, bring better efficiencies. We have a great mission statement, and it's, it's to be the best place to get care, the best place to work, and the best place to practice medicine. So if you keep that in mind, it really does give you the leeway for a broad view of what's going on in the world. What I tend to do, what, what I try to do, is keep my eyes open and my ears attuned to what I hear, to what I read. And it may be that I would recognize that this is something that the behavioral health people would really be, or maybe should really be interested in, and I'll approach them. What happens then is that most of the time, they'll say, thank you very much, we're already on to this. Some of the time they say, thanks very much, we'll do a bit of digging and see if this would work, or thanks very much, can you find out a little bit more? And when the response comes back about finding out a little bit more, that gives me the opportunity to take a personal deeper dive and basically go from there. Can you give me an example of something like that, behavioral health or what have you, that you've gotten into? I had the opportunity to, or have the opportunity to sit on a, I think it's called the Strategic Advisory Council for J&J. &J. And several months ago, as part of that, we did a visit through the Health Management Academy to Verb Surgical in San Jose. Verb Surgical is a joint venture of Google and Ethicon division of Johnson & Johnson. So they have a heck of a pedigree and they're interested in looking at a digital surgery, robotics and other pieces of that. I thought this was just absolutely fascinating, the approach that they were taking. They recognized right off the bat that this had to be more than just a different way to build a device, but really needed a platform, and a platform that would be able to connect with disparate EMRs, with disparate healthcare organizations, because from the outset, they had the goal of democratizing this kind of surgery, and that would involve collecting as much information about patients before their surgery, during their surgery, and after their surgery in a fashion that involved detail a lot deeper, a lot more comprehensive than what we generally do today. And I thought that this fit perfectly with the mission that I described previously for uh, Sharp Healthcare. So I got very excited about this, was able to have a couple of conversations with the leaders at Verb on my own to make sure that I understood what they were doing and, and how a community organization, I should have said earlier that Sharp is not involved with academics or teaching programs. It's purely a very high-performing community organization. And then came back to our leadership and said, hey, I've had this experience, I've talked to these people, I really think there's something there. And the rewarding part of doing this is when the boss and the assistant boss and other folks around the table say, hey, that's great, yeah, we agree, we think this is something that maybe we should look into, what do you suggest next? And the next thing that we did was took one of our very senior leaders, our executive vice president, and eight surgeons who do robotic surgery and went up to have a tour of the facility 
and a discussion with Verb as to how a community organization like Sharp could get involved with something like this. That's one example. Um, that relationship is continuing. We've had some very recent discussions and uh, plan on hosting the Verb folks down here in a few weeks or a month, and we'll see where it goes. But it's, it's already impacted the way our robotic surgeons think about things, and I think it's very important when we come back from these sessions or these trips that we spread this information around the organization and get everybody as much as possible involved. So when you do that work of spreading, it sounds like you're the point person for connecting with others and bringing that information to them. At some point, though, I imagine this starts to intersect with data that your organization is developing and, and analytics so you can say this is working well, and that could be part of, in this case, the verb relationship where they know how to measure the impact of the thing that they're bringing. Is that the kind of thing that you do, or is that something you have others in the organization follow on that? I, I think one of the important things that I have to do is make sure that the people who would be impacted by innovation have the opportunity to get involved early to know about this early. We have a relatively small innovation committee. It's centered in information systems. Part of our strategic plan is to look at this in the next couple of weeks and probably expanded around the organization a bit wider than it is now. But every couple of months, we do a lunch and learn session where we invite mostly folks in information systems to present an idea for innovation that they have. I thought that we could get four of these into an hour. So the, the first time we did it, I looked at my watch and 35 minutes into the first presentation, people are still asking questions. So we had to fine tune that a little bit. But I think that's the kind of activity that helps to spread the notion of innovation around the organization and get as many people as possible involved. Have you run into spectacular failures? And really what I'm after is sort of lessons learned and how not to do it? I don't know about a spectacular failure, but one of the <laughs> areas that I, I felt that has always needed some help is how organizations like Sharp communicate with their physicians. Now, you have to remember we have these three groups. We have almost employed folks in our Resteely Foundation model. We have pretty good ways of communicating with them, less so with our IPA. IPA stands for Independent Practice Association. So it, it's a little more difficult to make sure the message is getting through to them. And, of course, the independents are all over the map in terms of often not wanting to use, say, our sharp email system, and, and it becomes much more difficult. So a couple of years ago, I stumbled across a product that will go unnamed today because it's no longer valuable that I thought was tailor-made for the ability to contact a group of physicians, all of the physicians on the med staff, all of the physicians at a certain hospital, all of a certain specialty at a certain hospital, and thought that this thing was going to go like crazy. And I engineered a bit of a rollout, and the thing fell flat on its face. I've done a couple of post-mortems on it. I think I was overly optimistic about physicians wanting another vehicle to get information and overly optimistic on how easy it would be to curate interesting content. If you don't have content and you don't have it regularly, people don't look at it regularly, and then 
when something important comes along, it sits there in their inbox and is never read or utilized. So I learned a big lesson that time. Yeah, that sounds very similar to the idea that if this new process or thing is not part of my normal workflow, it's going to be a struggle for me to engage. Is, is, am I getting close on that? I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot. And then, you know, I see the electronic health record companies are obviously very interested in managing the workflow and the clinician interspace. And sometimes that works well and sometimes it doesn't. So I think one of the concerns I've seen is that the technology is not quite what we wished for. Are you hearing from a lot of clinicians that the EMR is, is wonderful and great or it's awful or mixed bag? I, I think it's very much a mixed bag, and there are many reasons for that. And there are, you know, a number of physicians in our organization, like every organization, who rue the day they first had to log into an EMR system. I think that a lot of the difficulty with EMRs relates to the timing that they became available, they were deployed by organizations like ours, and this perfect storm of meaningful use, ICD-10, and several other initiatives, all well-meaning, all relatively necessary, that just came together at the wrong time, and all of them required the physician to do something extra, often nowhere near the top of their license within the EMR. So things that I consider kind of silly, like this two-midnight rule that CMS has, where a trauma surgeon saves somebody's life who's been in a horrific automobile accident, has multiple broken bones, multiple head injuries, chest concussion, contusion to the heart, and then has to say at the end of their note describing all this, I think the patient will have to stay in the hospital for more than two midnights. I mean, it's just, it's Looney Tunes. And there, there are so many things that it's fallen to the doctor to do this, and it really is way below top of license. It's you know, been shown that not practicing at top of license is a great way for docs to develop frustration uh, and to be unhappy with their workplace and their work situation. Yeah, I completely agree. The storm, I think, comes from maybe well-intended policy that then cascades into rules that are in aggregate getting between clinicians and caring for the people who've come to them. And I see that as a big problem. And I presume that's part of what you're searching to solve as you're out there surveying what's new and what can improve the life of the Sharp organization. Absolutely, and, and one of the things we always have an eye on is how to optimize our EMR systems and how we would lessen the burden of the EMR, not just to physicians, but to all the clinicians, to our nurses. And, and frankly, you know, pharmacists are in one of the most difficult positions of all our systems, and, and I know this is standard uh, in other EMRs and in other organizations. The alerts that are presented to pharmacy staff are if physicians think they have alert fatigue, um, I mean, it, it has to be alert exhaustion for pharmacists. 
On the physician side, we often fine-tune the alerts so that doctors only see the highest level of severity of alert. So with drug interactions, only the most serious, only the most complex, where pharmacists usually get bombarded with all three or four levels of drug interaction. And it's amazing to see what, especially a hospital-based pharmacist, has to look at because in most states, the pharmacist has to approve the ordering of medications by a physician to have them dispensed within the hospital. And man, it's a lot of work. Well, that is where I hope we get to go. And I wonder, where do you go when you're out searching for good ideas and new things? I try to go to my colleagues in the CMIO and CMO field as much as possible. Uh, I love going to Health Management Academy meetings. One of the things we have there is this notion that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so we're not afraid to talk about our failures as well as our successes, and that is absolutely crucial in this field. I've been fortunate to be invited to sessions like this uh, strategic advisory group that J&J has put together and uh, have been invited to a lot of the incredible sessions that 3M puts on. And it's the networking with those kinds of meetings and those kinds of sessions that really opens doors and helps to open one's mind as to what's possible. You know, when you're in medicine and you're looking after patients, it's okay to steal ideas from other people. You're not really stealing them. Imitation in this regard really is the highest form of flattery. And it is, you know, something that I enjoy telling my colleagues what we're trying to do that's a little bit different here, and I really enjoy sitting down and listening to what others are experimenting with, what's been a success, and what they have had to go back and retry or rework. Well, Dr. Rick Lemoyne, thank you so much for your time and insights today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www. 3mhisinsideangle.com.